scripture reading comes from Revelation 2. Start in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships in my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has, ears to, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will, give them, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's the word of the Lord. Well, we are in week two of our journey through the book of Revelation. If you joined us last week, we remember we talked a bit about kind of the origin of what is happening here with John being off onto the island of Patmos and getting swept up in the spirit and seeing this vision of Jesus. And we're now entering into a section where Jesus himself, through the angel, reveals what his word is for seven specific churches. And when we think about church, I often wonder what, what it is that comes to our mind. I think that being the fact that we live in the United States in this time in history, oftentimes people think of a consumer church. They may go somewhere and say, man, I like that church, but I don't really feel like I'm being fed here, right? And they kind of use that, that language of church somehow exists in order to meet my needs. And look, it's hard to pick a church, and I think for all of us, I don't mean that to be condescending in any way. Like, we have our list of things we're looking for. We want a certain um, style of music or a pastor that we connect with. There are many things that go into that decision of where we're going to attend church. But I think it can be damaging when our primary motivation is our own consumption. C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He says, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for the suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. The enemy in this quote is God as he's writing from the perspective of the demons who are trying to trap people. Another thing that people think about not only do people think about the church as maybe a consumer church, but they often think about uh, people or churches in a way that, that has, when we think about credibility of the church, like what is the church? Does it have credibility? You know, one of the things that's been interesting is historically, the institution of the church has been through some ups and downs. Uh, many read heartbreaking stories in today's world about scandals that have broken out, about church leaders who have made moral mistakes and churches collapsing because of it. In fact, the, one of the number one podcasts right now is a story about a church that grew up to be 15,000 people and then collapsed on the weight of someone's failings. This is nothing new, however. Historically, church institutions rise 
and fall. And yet, God's mission, somehow the mystery is that his mission continues to advance even in the midst of that. There's a great quote um, by Professor Gerald Sitzer. He says this, When the church is functioning at its best, there is simply no community on earth that can rival it. But when the church is functioning at its worst, there is no community on earth that can do as much damage. History itself proves this point. The church has served untold millions, as is evidenced by the churches, hospitals, orphanages, schools, and relief agencies that Christians have founded and operated. But the church has brutalized untold millions, as the medieval inquisition or the religious wars of the 17th century also demonstrate. This is the mystery, is that in the midst of the gathering and the brokenness of God's people, his mission continues. What we see in the next few chapters is that Jesus has a word for these churches, a very specific word. And he'll always start, he'll start by saying, this is what I love about your church. This is what I hate about your church. And then he, he kind of closes it with a compliment sandwich and he says something nice at the end. Right? That's kind of the method in which he sort of rebukes these churches. Um, the church in Ephesus is very important because it asks the question, how do you get passion for God and maintain it over the long haul? I want you to think for a moment back to when perhaps you can think back and look back to when your faith was on fire. Maybe it was the first time you first understood the gospel. Maybe it was a time you were serving God and you could just sense his presence in your life. How is it that we maintain that fire? Because inevitably, for all of us, maybe that has in time faded. Now, a little bit of context before we dive in here. We learn John's writing from Patnos. He gets this vision, swept up in the spirit. And the church in Ephesus was actually one that Paul had planted in one of his earlier missionary journeys. It's an important church. In fact, of these seven churches, it's the oldest church. It's the one that has been around the longest. And it's in a very large major city that was once a port city, meaning that ships would come in and out of it. So there was lots of frantic activity. And what happens is Jesus is showing and, and, and showing the church what happens when churches begin to decline. Let's jump into verses 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and I have found, and found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships in my name and have not grown weary. So Paul begins here with five commendations for the church, right? The first is perseverance. You have to remember that during this time, we talked about this last week, but Domitian was emperor, and they were facing tremendous persecution, threats of physical violence, right? This, this narcissist of an emperor would literally take Christians, dip them in hot oil, and light them on fire. This was the, ex the extreme persecution and living in fear of physical violence, right? When Christianity used to be just sort of this, this Jewish sect, and people didn't really know what it was. In fact, there were even laws in place to protect Christians. Through time and through emperors, this became worse and worse, and eventually it was viewed as a different religion and a threat, a real threat of physical safety. And yet, Paul here says, well done. You have persevered in the midst of tremendous persecution. The second commendation is that of holiness, 
right? He says, you cannot tolerate wicked people. Can you imagine uh, for a second the immorality that was taking place in Ephesus, right? There was the temple of Artemis where they had thousands of male and female prostitutes, and people would come to this testimony and worship these prostitutes. On top of that, this was a city where it was a, a, a uh, port city, so there's a harbor. And in and out, these sailors are coming. There were brothels all throughout that harbor. There was all kinds of sexual immor- immorality that was rampant throughout the city. And I think sometimes we lament that we're living in a time where our culture is so sex-crazed and, and we're so sinful. We're living in this crazy culture. But the reality is, throughout history including this time in Ephesus, this is how humanity has always been. We've always had a leaning or a propensity towards sin. We've always been sinful throughout time. Humanity hasn't gotten worse. It's always been that way. And so here's what makes it so interesting, right? Paul says that you've had, there's been all this tremendous immorality surrounding you, and yet you would not tolerate it in your own church, and I'm proud of you because of that. I love your perseverance and your holiness. The third commendation is doctrine. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. They cared about solid doctrine. If you remember in Acts 20, Paul warns the Ephesian elders and says, be on guard because false teachers will rise up among you. And apparently, this church took that seriously, because now, however many years later, they continue to be commended for their doctrine. He uses two terms, actually, that are, in that time, politically incorrect, right? He says, uh, you hate and you will not tolerate, right, in relation to talking about the Nicolaitans, okay? So he's very clear that because they've held strong to their doctrine, that this is a positive thing in their church. The fourth is their hard work. Uh, a strong Greek word is used here that's like laboring to the point of exhaustion. This is not a lazy church. This is a church that goes after it. They work hard. They're diligent. And lastly, they're faithful. It says, all of this has happened, and yet you've endured hardship for my name. Okay, so you get this strong praise for Ephesus. Clearly, Jesus has words of, of affirmation. And it's kind of like this. I mean, think Imagine this with me. Imagine that we had a church-wide meeting. We all gathered together, and Pastor Stan comes to the stage and says, hey, guys, I got this good news from John himself. He wrote me this letter. Actually, to tell you the truth, Jesus um, shared this information with John. So it's actually a word from Jesus himself. That'd be pretty exciting, right, to get to hear the words of Jesus, but also a little bit scary. And you can imagine one by one, Pastor Stan reads the letter. He says, you are persevering. And we're like, yeah, we persevered through a pandemic, right? We're still up, we're still running, we're going strong. It says, you have sound doctrine. We're like, yeah, we're Eastminster, we're Reformed, we have solid doctrine, we hold that as a high standard, right? You are holy. We're like, praise God, yes, we are. We are so holy and awesome. You're hardworking by grace. You are faithful, right? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for for all the things you've blessed us with. And then he says this, yet I have this against you. You can imagine in that moment sort of the nervousness, the stomach, the stomachs that sink because we know something is coming. And then he, char- he takes this charge and he levels it against them. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
there's been a bit of a crisis that's happened in the Western church, in the United States particularly. Um, we've seen churches on the decline for quite some time, specifically mainline denominations have been in rapid decline. Uh, we're seeing that this, not in other places in the world, the church is actually growing rapidly. On the global south and in Asia and different places, the church is growing. But in the United States, we are seeing trends of the church dying. And there are actually, like, there's a legit industry of uh, people who do conferences and write books and bring in consultants and, and show ways in which we can try to fix the problem of a dying church. And there are strategies to employ and there are things you can do to try to reignite that passion. But I want to quickly dispel maybe a few myths, a few things that I think are not the solution that Jesus offers us as possibly a church in decline. Here are some of the myths. The first myth it's the myth of the super pastor, right? We hear all the time that, uh, that everything rises and falls on leadership, that leadership is the most important thing for people moving into the future, and that if you have money and favor, you can bring in a super pastor who's a really high-functioning leader and will somehow bring a group of people into the future. I want you to think about for a second, and let me say this, leadership is important. I would take a super pastor over a bad pastor, no doubt. Um, that being said, let's think about this for a second, all right? Think about the 40-year history of the church of Ephesus. Who came before? We had Paul. Obviously, Paul um, was a big deal. Um, he was like healing people with his handkerchief and stuff. Like the guy has power, right? The guy is very gifted as a minister. Not only that, he had a really good understanding of the culture. Uh, he was a strong leader and he lays the foundation for what is to come. Then you've got the power couple, right? Priscilla and Aquila, okay? They come in and they do an amazing job and Paul praises them. And then Timothy takes over and he's the pastor at Ephesus. And then you have the Apostle John who's writing this letter. You've got a super pastor lineup, right, that has, that has led this church throughout the years. And yet, right, you still have this charge leveled against them. I may suggest tonight that the super pastor is not the answer. The second myth is that miracles will change the equation. If we could only have something miraculous happen, if only someone could be healed in our midst, if only we could see you know, something crazy happen, then maybe, maybe that will turn the tides. The problem of this idea is that we have the entire Old Testament, which tells a very different story. Right? You have in the Exodus, you see God in all of his power with these giant plagues. Uh, that, are, that are absolutely spectacles and, and crazy for people to witness. And then you have probably my favorite miracle where God parts the Red Sea, right? And they walk through. And I, just imagine for a second what that would be like to see that in the flesh, to experience God's power in all of its grandeur. And then what happens when they cross over, right? They immediately start, they, well, they sing a song first, and then they start, like, complaining again, right? They start complaining, why have you brought us into the wilderness and so it's as if they can see this incredible miracle, but it's not enough. We see this in Acts 19. Uh, God does extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that his handkerchiefs and aprons that touch people um, are healing them. Their illnesses were cured. Evil spirits are leaving them. And it's not even Paul. It's like he's like handing out handkerchiefs and healing people. It's crazy. And even in the midst of that, like those people were not that far removed from that happening. And yet Jesus still levels this charge against them. The third myth 
is this idea of cultural impact, right? We just need to win the culture back. Uh, we see the example of this in Acts 19, verse 17. Uh, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery, this is the important part, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to, uh, to 50,000 drachmas. In, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Right? So the gospel, in this instance, is changing culture. People are bringing their sorcery, their scrolls, all these things, and burning them. It reminds me, when I was in youth group, and we'd burn all of our secular CDs. I was like, oh, Lincoln Park, in the fire, right? This was like a thing that we did. There was this cultural impact that it had. Um, and 40 years later, Jesus still levels this charge. The cultural impact isn't even enough. Fourth is mission. And mission is a good thing. We are a church on mission. We want to be on mission. But this idea that we will weed off all consumers and do hard things to get the mission going is not the salvation we are after. It's this idea that if we can get mission going, if we can do, uh, it's almost a buzzword that is used in church culture, if we can do mission, then ultimately we will really love Jesus. Actually, something like this happens in Acts. We see this in uh, chapter 19, verse 8. Paul enters the synagogue. He speaks boldly there for three months, and he's arguing for the kingdom of God. But some of them, it says, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture halls of Tyrannus. They went on for two years, okay? So two years of this. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So imagine this. This is a really big deal. Imagine a church service, okay? We go 6.30 to 7.00. We like our hour-long service. Imagine it going 6.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m., right? It's a long service. And then after all these services, Paul's like, all right, I'm going to send you away to, let's say, Canada, right? Because Canadians need Jesus. Um, and after two years of being in this country, right? After two years of this, you come back and you, we do one of those mission updates at church and the, they get on the stage and say, yes, every single person in Canada heard the gospel. That would be a really big deal. And yet, the cool thing is that actually the churches that were planted, right, the ones that we're going to hear about, these are, these, are, these are the exact same churches. The rebuke still stands. And five, the myth of doctrine. That if we can just get our doctrine right, then we're good. If we can just have right belief, if we can just have all perfect thinking and have that right, then we'll be good. The book in the Bible, Ephesians, was a book written to the church in Ephesus. And if you've read it, it has some of the most beautiful and robust doctrine in the entire scriptures. It's a great book. And so they had great doctrine. And yet, having perfect God-inspired theology was not enough to stop them from losing what Jesus calls their first love. So what is it? It's that you have forsaken your first love. This is what Jesus says the problem is. And the word here, forsaken, means to dismiss or to send away. We see this actually in Jeremiah chapter 2. 
This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of our youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, though a land not sown. And then in verse 13, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That's a powerful metaphor. Cisterns were were a thing that was built to hold water, to keep it together. And he's saying these things will lead to broken cisterns. You have dug cisterns that cannot hold true water. I think many people dig uh, their own cisterns, whether that be money, sex, power, fame, success, whatever it is in which we define our meaning and purpose. But I also think that Christians sort of build their own religious cisterns. Like, we've got church down, we're doing it right, we're, doing, we're going to church like we should, we're checking off our box, we're being a good Christian. But Jesus says, I have a problem even with that. And yet, full of grace and mercy, Jesus calls them back. And he calls them to do three things. The first is to remember how far you have fallen. Theologians use the word to fall uh, as the moment when uh, we see this a couple times. We see it when Satan fell from heaven. We see it when Adam and Eve um, rebelled and in, in sinned in the garden, and they, we call it the fall. It's the moment sin entered the world. Um, this word implies that there is a separation from God and a dependence on self. It says, remember the height from which you fell. Remember the height. We actually need to go back to Paul to understand this. In Ephesians 2, Verse 6, it says, God raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us up with them in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of grace expressed to us in the kindness in Christ Jesus. So this is one of the things, right, this idea of being raised up with Christ that I think is so startling with people when they get saved. Right? Imagine sinners and, and those who are outside of the faith. When they come into the faith, they're being taken from the outside and they're being brought into the family of God. They're being raised and being seated with Jesus. And I want to ask you, do you remember in your life, for those of you who are walking with Jesus, do you remember that moment when you came to faith? Do you remember that moment where you sensed that, that ex- excitement of seeing God in your midst? I think it's a little bit like a romantic relationship. When you start falling in love with someone, you become all consumed by them. Your world becomes connected with their world. I'll tell you a little story. Back when um, my wife and I weren't dating at the time, we weren't married at that point, Um, and I had, (laughs) probably shouldn't share this, oh well. Um, I had a job I had to do with the church. We were hosting a choir from Houston, and uh, I was, since I was the youth pastor, they're like, you need to stay at the church and sleep here. I'm like, why? So I slept in my office. They had adults there and everything, but they were in the gym sleeping. So I'm in my office. It's like 10 o'clock. I'm like, I can't believe I have to sleep here. I'm sleeping on my floor. This is miserable. And the couch was like, you know, too small uh, in my office. So I'm just kind of like, all right, I'm just going to tough it out. And I get a text message from Betsy. And she had just gone on a date that didn't go great. And she's like, hey, I was just thinking about you, had a bad date, miss you. And mind you, we hadn't been talking at the time. We had a little bit of a break. Um, so I get that text. I'm like, oh, she misses me. It's exciting. 
And so we get back to texting back and forth, and eventually she invites me. She's like, hey, you want to come over? We can talk about it. And I was like, oh, I got to do this thing. He's like, well, maybe I can just come over for a little bit, right? I was coming over for like 20 minutes. I go back to the church. And uh, one thing led to another, and it's 6 in the morning, and we had talked all night long. And I remember looking at my watch and oh, no, I got to get breakfast. I'm supposed to get breakfast for these people. So I had to run out like last minute to get donuts and orange juice and um, feed the choir that was here from Houston. And I remember for the next, I think, 40 days, I saw Betsy every single day. She was the last thing I thought about. I remember driving home at night, and I would drive back in the morning just to bring her breakfast or make her breakfast or do anything. She was all I thought about. It was all-consuming. And I'll be honest with you, um, I still do nice things for her. I mean, we're married. I don't make her breakfast every day. It's not all-consuming. My love for her is deeper, but it certainly is not the same passionate, exciting type of love when we first started dating. I think oftentimes we can look back um, to our faith and think back to moments when we had that excitement in our life, in our relationship with God. We can remember moments when God moved us, when we saw God move and we sensed his presence so tangibly, or when God brought us to the faith for the very first time, and it was like our life turned around in an instant. It's that unbridled faith of our youth. There's this great song uh, that I have a playlist on my phone uh, that we use to put Emma to sleep, and one of the songs is a song, Let It Happen by United Pursuit, and in the bridge, it goes, so take me back back to the beginning, when I was young, running through the fields with you. It's with you. I wrote that down. It's a beautiful line. It's a line that says, God, take me back. Let me remember that moment when I was young, when my faith wasn't wasn't struggling, but when I just fully trusted with you and I would run through the fields with you. What Jesus is saying is to remember that. Remember those moments. Remember the times when I was so meaningful in your life because we often forget. And in our culture, we are so busy and inundated with so many different things that oftentimes Jesus becomes an afterthought rather than in moments to sort of break that cycle, we remember, we uh, specifically choose to remember those moments when Jesus was more than that. Number two, he wants us to repent In the Way series we just finished, we talked a lot about repentance, right? It's a change of mind that leads to a change in how we live. Um, Specifically, we're turning away from sin and moving towards Jesus. And I think we live in a culture where sometimes we see someone who's on fire for Jesus and there's zeal and excitement, and we're thinking, man, good for them. It's not going to last forever, though. Like, it's going to fade and eventually become a normal Christian, and then maybe eventually you'll become a critic and a cynic and... And we have this sort of attitude that I think is a dangerous attitude. We often live in a culture that spends more time critiquing a sermon or critiquing a worship service rather than allowing our affections to be stirred and moved towards God. I know I'm guilty of this. So what is that spirit? I think we need to repent of it. Because Jesus' vision and expectation is to be a first love kind of people. The third thing is this. Return to the things that you did at first. Uh, There's a group of Christians in the 1700s called the Moravians. And uh, they're these missionaries from the 1700s. I learned about this in seminary. But but there's this concept 
with them that kind of moved me, and it made me think of this particular idea. Um, they had an experience as a collective group of people that they called a Pentecost. Okay, It wasn't the Pentecost, but it was a kind of Pentecost. Um, a village of 300 people. Think of them as they're, they're kind of like refugees. A lot of different ethnic and uh, even theological differences within this group caused a lot of division. But there was this moment of great unity and repentance when the Holy Spirit falls on them, and they have this crazy long church service, okay? Like way, it would make Presbyterians way uncomfortable, right? It was a long, long service, and the, the love of God is flowing through them, and it starts this incredible movement of 100-year, 24-hour prayer meetings. It's a pretty good prayer meeting, right? And someone once came and visited them, and their line was, this place is heaven on earth. John Wesley famously visited their community and said, I wish I could stay here forever. This place is the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so what they would do is they would stay and they'd wake up and they'd pray and they'd sing and they'd pause to pray some more throughout the day. And the night would come and they'd walk around the village and they would sing songs to God. And it was so much. The zeal was so permeable amongst the community. And someone said, why are you doing all of this? And Nicholas von Zinzendorf, it's one of my favorite theologian names, said this. He also goes by Count Zinzendorf. He said, we are fending off lukewarmness. We are fending off lukewarmness. I love this vision. They weren't taking things for granted, but they were fending off lukewarmness. They knew how easy it was to grow cold in their faith. Are we doing things in our life to fend off lukewarmness. Because I think so naturally we can slip into the type of apathy that I think has taken over much of the church in Western culture. It can be so easy as to slip into the consumer, the person who attends church to get something out of it, or even sees God as something to get something for their own life. Or we turn into the critic, the person who is consistently critiquing all things instead of encountering the true Jesus. As we close, we look at Jesus' final warning. It says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here's the end of the compliment sandwich, right? He says, if you do not repent, I will remove you from your lampstand. But you have this in favor. You hate the practices. So it's, it's a, uh, we'll see this throughout the other churches as we go through it. But to sort of explain what this is, like what is this lampstand? I know Stan talked about it a little bit in week one on Sunday, but um, I, I would describe it like this. It'd be like if a policeman um, saw people commit crimes, and instead of enforcing the law, simply let it happen. What would you do? Well, you would probably fire that policeman. You would remove them from their job. If a judge had a guilty person in their quarters, and it was very clear they needed to enforce the law and enforce justice because this person was guilty, but he chose not to, you would remove that judge. If a doctor had a, a medical practice but refused to help people who were sick, you would remove that doctor. Okay, kind of get the point here. If you have a church who does not love Jesus, what do you do? In Jesus' language, you remove it. And I wonder... I've been thinking about this. If maybe the church in the United States, the decline that we're seeing, maybe it's because they don't have the right strategies, or maybe it's because they're not doing things in a way that's exciting for our culture, or maybe it's some of that, or possibly 
they are being removed because they don't love Jesus anymore. I believe that Jesus wants us to be equally yoked. He's given everything for us, died on a cross and rose again, and he's not interested in people who want to simply play church. He wants people to return to the love that he has already given us, and he wants us to respond. This is a warning for the church in Ephesus, but it is also a warning to us. So in closing, I ask, what are you doing in your life to guard your heart? What robs you of intimacy with God? For some, it could be doubts that creep into our life. For some, it's disappointment with God. For some, we get distracted by earthly things that we tend to chase. Sometimes we even just drift away. We don't realize how far we're gone until we look back and see how far away we are from the shore. I have this picture I want to show you. I came across this when I was doing my prep. This is crazy. Ephesus, okay, is, is they're looking to reconnect it to its ancient harbor with the enlargement of a massive canal. Now, what's crazy about this is that if you go to the next picture, you'll see the distance between where the harbor used to be and where and how long of a canal. It's like 3.7 miles to connect where the harbor used to be to the shoreline. What that means is that over time, and this is obviously due to some environmental things, but when you have a harbor like that, ships are coming in and out. There's a lot of pollution, and you actually have to clear out the muck from the water. They had special tools for this, or else over time, right, that water would slowly erode away, and it would become land. And so over time, you notice the water has moved farther and farther out because they failed to tend to the situation that they had. Now, in order to build a canal that long, that's a, that's a very big undertaking, okay? That's a lot of digging, I want to show you another picture. Here's what it looks like, right, in fruition once they have built it. Uh, you can kind of see, like, this is not a small project, but they are doing whatever they can. They're doing anything they can to make this canal happen. And after years and years of being so far away from who they were, right, they've made this effort to reconnect to who they used to be. And perhaps a word for some of us tonight is that maybe it's been a long time since you felt connected to God. Maybe you felt very far from God for a long time. And you feel like, man, I remember how I used to be. I remember my love and my zeal and my excitement for the Lord. I just don't have that anymore. And it's been so long, and you feel like maybe you'll never get it back. I want you to hear these words tonight. God will dig a canal, no matter how far the distance and his pursuit of you is ongoing. He sees you and knows you and knows your position and says, look, I want you back. I want that first love we once had. I want that excitement and zeal for life. And this adventure I have for you is so much better. And I will pursue you. I will chase you. I will dig a canal no matter how long the distance is so that streams of living water can get to your heart. Is that you? Because I believe that God's love can find you. That can be your story. Our practice this week, as we go, as we leave this place, we, we're, we're trying to integrate practices into uh, the way in which we live so that our worship is not some sort of compartmentalized thing, but it is a part of our everyday life. And our practice this week is to remember. It's to remember the moments when God moved you. It's to remember being swept up in worship. It's to remember a prophetic word maybe that was spoken to you. 
It's remembering a time when God answered a prayer in a huge way. It's remembering the zeal and joy of your youth. It's remembering how God used you in someone's life and remembering the love that you had first. Let's pray. God, as we remember, as we dwell, as we revel in your love, we revel in your glory, we revel in your goodness, and we say thank you for all that you've given us. I know that there are people here, including myself at times in my life, who feel far from you, feel disconnected, who feel like uh, that there, there's a sense of apathy. And I pray that for all of us, that we would, as a community, embrace this practice of remembering and reminding ourselves of the love that we once had. God, that, we would, that you would take us back to the love of our youth, running through the fields with you, the kind that excites us and gets us passionate for what it is that you're doing in the world. Lord, may Eastminster not be a church um, that forgets our first love, but one that consistently is reminded and remembers the ways in which you've been faithful, the ways in which you've walked with us throughout the years, the 60 plus years that this church has existed. Lord, I pray that as we go that you continue to speak to us, reveal us blind spots and places where we're desperate for you. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.